The VA hired more employees in fiscal 22 than at any point in recent history. But it needs to hire about 52,000 employees every year just to keep up with attrition and more veterans entering the VA system. That's why the VA is looking at cutting down the time it takes to onboard critically needed new hires. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with more. And you attended a briefing by VA officials, Jory, and what did they say they're doing to get people on board quicker? Yeah, I recently uh, sat down, some reporters did, with the newly confirmed Undersecretary for Health, Dr. Sharif El Nahal, and he was saying that the VA is going to have a national onboarding surge event the week of November the 14th. And what this is going to do is it's going to really help get the people who have already said yes to a job offer at the VA, getting them to work more quickly. That's a actually a pretty lengthy part of the process these days to say nothing about the lengthy hiring process, which is itself a bit of a project. Elna Hall said that every facility in the country submit a list of their highest priority individuals that need to be brought on board as quickly as possible, regardless of their position. The idea here is this is primarily affecting healthcare workers, the people that they need most critically, but this is going to bring together the HR professionals, it's going to bring together the facility leaders, and the people who are in charge of the Veterans Integrated Service Networks more broadly at a regional snapshot to better understand how they can get people on board and getting the work done as soon as possible. This event will be focused on the onboarding process in particular after selection, because we know that comprises a significant time span even after selections are made. And we know that to some frequency, we lose folks after we've made the selection because of how long that can take. And presumably the long hiring process has been because in part, they want to make sure the people have the knowledge of medical science necessary to work in VHA. But then there's that tail after they've agreed to get them on board. How long does that actually take, Jory? In short, longer than it used to. Uh, there were some temporary emergency authorities that the Office of Personnel Management gave the VA earlier in the COVID-19 pandemic to fast track some of that background search, background investigation work that was being done for new employees, making sure that, again, for people who are working in hospitals, that they don't have a criminal background or, or something that would disqualify them for working with veterans and patients. But Right now, those emergency authorities have lapsed, and what it's looking at these days is that it's taking about 90 to 100 days in some instances to bring people on board. And again, this is not counting any of the hiring process, which is its own you know, time you're adding on top of that. And VA Secretary Dennis McDonough, he told reporters last month that, look, this is way too long to wait for a job that you've already said yes to, to actually get started and actually start getting paid. This is actually all part of really the VA looking at some long-term workforce things it needs to do under the PACT Act and the RAISE Act. We are now working with a bulk of the process that we were able to skip in that emergency context before to get folks on board. And this attrition question, Jory, this is something that devils a lot of parts of the government. How bad is attrition at the VA? Well, we don't have specific numbers on what you said in the lead here, Tom, but the VA did break records in terms of hiring for fiscal 2022, and that's still not enough. They're going to need to bring in 52,000 new employees per year just to keep up with the rate of attrition and keep up with the new patients that are coming into the system because of legislation like the PACT Act. Really, to give you a little bit more of a granular snapshot here, McDonough said in September, he told reporters that July 2022 was the first month this year that the VA hired more nurses than it lost 
due to attrition, either retirement or otherwise leaving the agency. Here's Elna Hall saying more of what the VA needs to do to rebuild its workforce. This will be not only a chance to have a step function improvement in the number of folks on board, which is an urgent priority, but to also set the groundwork for the more longitudinal work that we will need to do to improve the hiring process, to improve our systems that our employees interface with, and ultimately to get more folks in the door as we proceed with this important priority. So like I mentioned earlier, Tom, the VA is doing a lot of this long-term workforce planning under the RAISE Act and the PACT Act. That last one specifically gives the VA expanded authority to offer retention and recruitment bonuses and expands their ability to offer student loan repayment for employees. So those are just some of the things the VA is looking to do to incentivize more people to join the VA. Now, there is a new medical director, as you say, just Senate confirmed, Dr. Elnahal. He is facing something that is an ongoing problem now for about three or four secretaries, and that is the electronic health record rollout, or we should say lack of rollout. Any update there? Yeah, so what we just learned from the agency is that the VA is going to hold off future deployments of its Oracle Cerner EHR to June of 2023. The plan was that they were going to start in January of the upcoming year. And what they're doing in this pause is they're going to address some previously known and potentially emerging problems with that system, one of which is a bug or defect in the system that was causing thousands of clinical orders to disappear from going from one place to another and winding up in an unmonitored inbox. They call this their unknown queue issue. And the second thing here is that the VA is sending letters to 41,000 veterans who may have been impacted by this new EHR and the problem that's caused at the five locations where that new EHR has gone live. Elna Hall said that they're really casting a wide net with this letter and that everyone who receives a letter didn't necessarily have something wrong with their health care, but they're just making sure that they're casting as wide a net as possible here. But the main issue here is that the deficiencies where this has been rolled out, nevertheless, do have the potential to impact healthcare delivery and cause injury. Right. Yeah. So with this unknown queue issue, this is something where pharmacy orders, uh, follow-up care have, have not gotten through to where they need to go. And so veterans are left waiting for you know medicines that they need and prescriptions not being filled, for example. This is something that the VA inspector general says has led to patient harm. All right, but El Nahal is saying that not necessarily everyone that gets a letter means that they're in health trouble. Let's hear what he said. We are doing, out of an abundance of caution, this broad disclosure to make sure that if a veteran identifies that they haven't heard about a medication or a laboratory study or a radiology study that they know they need, they call us so that we can get to the bottom of that even before we fix these system issues. All right. And that EHR jury has also raised concerns in Congress. I mean, this is getting to be a spreading issue, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Congress at this point, they are concerned that there is so little to show for this that the EHR has only gone live at five sites. It's supposed to go live at another 25 in fiscal 2023. And at this point, they're only going to start halfway through fiscal 2023. So big open question of what actually gets done here. And is it possible to know who's in charge? I mean, is it VA is the problem? Is it Cerner? Is it Oracle? I mean, Cerner is Oracle now, so you're dealing with a very large, experienced contractor. Is there any evidence you've seen that they're working actively with the contractor to get this straightened up? What Oracle has told congressional committees is that they have delivered a fix specifically to that unknown Q issue, and they delivered that in August of this year. And at this point, the VA 
isn't saying much about whether that addressed the full scope of the issue. What they're really saying is that they want to make sure that all of the issues, known or unknown, are resolved before they even think about doing future deployments, just recognizing that things haven't gone 100% according to plan. They want to make sure that that is the case for anything else going forward. And finally, Jory, during this uh, conference, did anything come up with respect to the modernizing of healthcare facilities? There was a big plan that kind of just got thrown overboard because the unions and a lot of people objected. That's a pretty good snapshot of what happened with the Asset and Infrastructure Review or Air Commission plan. Some senators, some key senators said in June that they weren't going to move forward with this plan to confirm commissioners to a board that would then look at right-sizing its portfolio of facilities across the country. What's happening now is the VA is still doing a quadrennial review of its facilities. And Elna Hall said that they're they're basically starting from scratch, that they are doing a bottoms-up process. They're going to relook at the market assessments that underpinned its original evaluation of its facilities, things that will reflect the COVID-19 pandemic. And they're going to ensure that they get some input from veterans groups that are in these local markets. Let's hope if they have a 75-year-old hospital in a ghost town, maybe they'll be able to close that one. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One 
don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say it's sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're 
passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.